Well, it's good to be back after five years. I was saying to the uh, Sunday school class this morning, I'm pretty sure I preached on 1 Kings chapter 18, the first half of the chapter. So it takes uh, every five years for me to come back and finish off the chapter. So in five years, I'll, I'll be back for us to do chapter 19. Well, uh, as I've traveled in India a lot growing up, uh, I've noticed on the roadside as, say, for example, as we're driving through a part of the country, that you'll find little temples, not much bigger than your own living room, spread throughout the country. So picture this, you're driving to the grocery store and you decide that you want to do a little bit of worship to your idol god. And so you can stop by one of these little temples, have your worship of that idol god, you know, an actual statue there in the temple, and then go do your groceries and head home. It's actually a fairly common activity in a country that has thousands of gods and thousands of idols. Actual physical idols planted in these little temples spread throughout the country. Now, as usual as that sounds to Western ears, we all have idols, things that compete for our worship of God. Idols are God substitutes. Now, they may not be wooden or metal, but they're embedded in each one of our hearts. We all worship something, and the question is, what demands our worship? What, what grabs our attention? What competes for God's affections in our life? Unlike India, we don't have statues in little temples on the roadsides, but we do have things in our life that demand our worship and compete for God's affections in our life. So my question for you today is, what are your idols? What are you worshiping today? If you've got a Bible, why don't you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 17 to 40. And the main thing we're going to consider is Eliza's challenge to us, and I want to state it as a question. How long will you waver between the Lord and your idols? There are false gods that we spend our days worshiping, and God's aim is to show us how foolish it is when we worship anything other than Him. So here's the sermon in just two sentences. If you like a thesis sentence, here it is. There is one true God... And you must follow the Lord and abandon your idols because your idols will fail you. There is one true God and you must follow the Lord and abandon your idols because your idols will fail you. So just a little background. In our story, Ahab is king over Israel and he marries Jezebel who came from the land north of Israel. And here's the problem. Foreign wives often bring foreign gods. So Jezebel persuaded her husband to turn away from the one true God and to worship the God of Baal. And as the king and queen go, so often does the entire nation. They're led astray to worship false gods. That's 1 Kings, that's the end of chapter 16. But at the beginning of chapter 17, what you find is the Lord sent the prophet Elijah. He comes onto the scene, and what does he do? At the very beginning of chapter 17... He announces a famine. A famine will come upon the whole land. And why does he do that? Why is that so important 
to this storyline. Well, you, when you come to understand who Baal is, you come to understand he's the God of rain. And what better way to show that the Lord is sovereign over everything than to take away the rain and to show that God, in fact, is in charge. So with that background in mind, let's look at chapter 18. I'm going to have three points for us this morning. So point number one, choose who you will serve. Point number one, choose who you will serve. And we're going to read chapter 18, verses 17 to 21. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me out Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, and if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So this is Ahab's first encounter with Elijah after three years of famine. And did you notice the first question out of Ahab's mouth? Look at verse 17. He says, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Ahab had lived three long years in the famine. Elijah announces the famine at the beginning of chapter 17, and then he's out of here. He's gone for three years. And so when Ahab gets news that Elijah's back, he goes to confront him. Ahab had lived three years under the famine, and he blamed Elijah for the famine. But Elijah, look at what he does. He turns it right back around and puts it on Ahab. Verse 18, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because, this is key, you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Elijah said that Ahab was at fault for the famine because the king had done two things. The first thing there, he had abandoned the commandments of the Lord. What are the commandments, the Ten Commandments, the very first of the Ten Commandments? Exodus chapter 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. But what's the second thing he says there in verse 18? He followed the Baals. Ahab led the nation to follow the false gods of Baal and Asherah. Ahab was trying to blame Elijah for the famine, but Elijah knew who was the real troublemaker. Verse 19, look there. Elijah asked Ahab to gather the prophets of Baal and Asherah and all the people at Mount Carmel. And then verse 21, Elijah turns to all of Israel and he offers this challenge. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Now I want you to picture on the one side the, 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 a church and then on the other side a wooden idol. 
Now, notice the word that Elijah used. He said, limping. Picture a man limping back and forth, dragging his leg, going back and forth between a church and a wooden idol. It's meant to be a pathetic picture of someone limping between these two different options. It's meant to be a pathetic picture of a limping man stumbling between the two options. The Israelites were wavering between two opinions. Will they follow God or will they follow Baal? And Elijah's challenged them to choose to follow which God they will serve. Now, Jason introduced that I have five children. You know, at one stage, we had five young children under the age of six. It was uh, an, an amazing few years. <laughs> Because we were in Parenting 101. We were on our A game and B game and C game. We, we worked really hard as parents. And yet, you know, you, have you ever been in that moment as a parent where you call a child to you after they've disobeyed? And do they often obey right away? No. They, they scamper. Sometimes they limp. Sometimes they drag their feet. They, they, they don't come right away. No, what do they do? They shuffle their feet. They limp along. When you tell them to come, they don't obey right away. It's not that the child is unable to come. The point is he doesn't want to come. There's a spiritual struggle in his or her heart. As they, they, they limp along, they drag their feet in order to come to you. Well, Elijah says to the Israelites, stop wavering between the Lord God Almighty and your false gods. Follow God and stop resisting. Stop dragging your feet. Stop limping along. Come to the Lord God right now. Choose this day whom you will serve. That's what he's saying. Choose this day whom you will serve. And therein lies the challenge for the people of Israel, but also for us. Who are you going to follow? Who are you going to follow today? That's the challenge which God wants to offer you today. Who will you follow? Will you follow the Lord or will you follow your own idols? Now, we all have idols, things that compete with God for our worship. Now, do you idolize success at work? Or maybe you're so caught up in work, it just simply dominates your life? Is there anything that controls your life other than God well, that's an indicator of it being an idol. Maybe you struggle with lust, and that wreaks havoc in your life. Maybe you manipulate your spouse for things. Uh, maybe you're so shaped by the opinion of others, you idolize what everyone else says about you. Maybe you're single, and you desire marriage, and you worship the idea of being married. Maybe you're single, and you worship your freedom. You do not want to be constrained by anything else. Uh, do you desire and worship material things, comfort and security, like a nice home, a beautiful lawn, a nice car, a good job, a great vacation? Whatever they are, you've got to admit, we all have idols. Take a moment and just think about it for yourself. What's my idol? What, what competes for God's affections in my life? What competes and pulls me away from God? And if you're not sure how to answer that, just simply answer, 
What matters more than God to me right now? Now, just take a moment and think about it. I want you to get in one, one or two of your idols in your own mind right now. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, thank you for coming. I'm thrilled that you're here on a Sunday morning, that you've chosen to join us together. Whether you realize it or not, you also have idols. And the question to ask yourself, what rules your life? What does your life revolve around? What matters to you? What matters to you more than anything else? I think what you'll find is if you look within your life, you'll find things that matter to you more than really all the other things in your life, and that is your own idol. Now, you may not have come today thinking that you have idols, but you do. Are there things that which you choose to build your life around because you think they bring you satisfaction or they give you something that you really want? Well, as Christians, we believe that the only lasting satisfaction is to turn to the living God and ask Him for help and build your life around Him. That's what matters most. And I'd submit to you that a job, a car, a house, a nice vacation, a good retirement plan, and relationships are not meant to ultimately satisfy you. The things that you're turning to are never meant to carry in and of themselves the burdens in which you place on them. Only God can do that. God did this by sending his son to die on a cross for our sins. He, he helped us by sending Jesus to die for us so that we don't have to bear the burden of these idols because they, they cannot carry the weight of our desires and our hopes and our dreams. So what makes you think that a job, material possessions, money in the bank, certain relationships really will ultimately satisfy you? Now, if, if, you're, if you think about what I just asked and you think, well, I disagree, I'd love to talk to you at the back door at the end of service. I'd, I'd love to have a conversation with you to talk about what are you ultimately worshiping in your life. Now, the striking thing, look at the end of verse 21. It says, the people did not answer him a word. The Israelites' lack of response, lack of response spoke volumes. The, the people were wavering between two gods and they were not ready to commit. And their silence was embarrassing. Now, as, as we were headed here to California, I started piecing things together and realizing we have had four couples get engaged in the last week in our congregation. It's like, love is in the air. <laughs> so I was thrilled as I started writing them back as I got to my hotel as I'm air traffic control for premarital counseling in our church. So I sent the questions out and starting to get responses and pair pastors with couples and do all that kind of work. Now, you know, I'm excited because as we hit spring, the, the season of marriages, will ceremonies in our congregation will start up again and we'll get to see lots of couples begin that step in marriage. Now, picture the last wedding you were at. You know, song sung, prayers prayed, the groom often looks dashing in his tuxedo, the bride looks beautiful in her white gown, the bridal party's gathered, and you get to this point in the ceremony where I, as the officiating pastor, say, look at Darren and say, Darren, do you take Sarah to be your wedded wife? And she's, he says, I do. And then I look at Sarah and I say, Sarah, do you take Darren to be your wedded husband? 
and everybody's watching. And imagine Sarah doesn't say anything. And we're all waiting for her to say the words I do. You know, and 30 seconds pass, and a minute pass, and then two or three minutes pass, and it's getting more and more awkward as we're all waiting for Sarah to say something. And we're all wondering, is everything okay? <laughs> well, it's embarrassing. And, and with each passing moment, it gets more and more embarrassing. What's going on? Well, it's no different for these Israelites. Their silence was communicating something to God. I have not made up my mind if I'm going to commit to you, God. I don't know if you're actually worth it, God. I don't know if I'm ready to give up my idols, God. I don't know if I'm ready to follow you and give my life over to you. That's what their silence was communicating. The God of the universe has sent his prophets to call the Israelites back to himself. And yet the people were not ready to give up their false gods. They are noncommittal at best. So are you ready? Are you ready for the da daily battle of fighting your own idols and dealing with the idols that are in with, within your own heart? You know, we have to ask every morning in our life, who will I follow? Who am I going to serve today? Who will I worship today? Who will I revolve my life around? It's a question we all have to ask, not just today, but every day when we get up. So there is another reason why we should also follow God and reject our idols, and that's point number two. Your idols will fail you. Point number two, your idols will fail you. And that's verses 22 to 29. Starting at verse 22, Elijah said, the, the, uh, Elijah said, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So Elijah explains to the people of Israel a sudden death competition between himself and the prophets of Baal. Look there, verse 22, Elijah points out that he's outnumbered. And then verse 23, Elijah explains the preparations for the offering. Each side gets a bowl, they get to cut it up and prepare it for the altar. And then verse 24, here's the key. Here's the key to the whole thing. They each get to call on their God, and the God who answers by fire, he's the real God. That's how they decide this competition. The God who answers by fire, he will be declared the real God. Only the true God will answer by fire and prove to be the real God in this competition between the prophets. Let's continue on, verse 25 to verse 29. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God and put no fire to it. 
And they took the bowl that was given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Then they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offerings of the oblation. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and no one paid attention. So look there at verse 25. Elijah turns to the prophets of Baal, and he gives them the same instructions for this sudden death competition. Did you notice that Elijah allowed them to go first? Did you notice that? It's a sudden death competition. Why did he allow them to go first? Why did he allow them to be the ones to cut up the bull first and put it on the altar? Is it good sportsmanship? Hey, you guys, I'll let you go before me. Or is it that the prophets have a bigger team, so he wants to let them call upon their God first? I would want to say to Elijah, Elijah, hey, don't you know? It's a sudden death competition. Why are you letting them go first? Well, Elijah lets the prophets of Baal go first because... He's confident Baal is not a god. He's not scared. He knew that if the prophets went first, it was going to amount to nothing. And in fact, he's right. Look at verse 26. The prophets pick a bowl, prepare it. They call upon Baal all morning. But the text says, there is no voice and no one answered. Verse 27, Elijah resorts to holy mockery of the prophets. And then verse 28, they break out in a religious frenzy, crying out, cutting themselves out of desperation, hoping that their frantic activity might provoke an answer out of Baal. But the text says in verse 29, there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. And just notice what the narrator doesn't say. He doesn't say, Baal didn't answer. No, the narrator doesn't even stoop so low to admit the existence of Baal. Instead, he says, no one answered. No one answered because Baal is not a god. He's fake. He's bogus. He's a non-entity. That's what the narrator is communicating to us. Now, put yourself in the position of the prophets of Baal. They had built their whole life around this false god. They had built their whole career around it. And Baal was supposed to deliver in the midst of this sudden death competition. But he didn't answer because he didn't exist. Do you expect too much from your idols? Here's my warning. It's futile to build your life around false gods. Because your idols will fail you. All of us have hearts that are idol factories. Jason quoted Calvin earlier, who talks often about 
Our, ha our hearts generate idols. Our hearts are idol factories. And our idols demand our worship. How do I know what an idol is? Well, you know what it is when it's taken away. Thousands of men committed suicide after the economy tanked in 2007. The Journal of British Psychiatry did a study about this. The suicide rate among men skyrocketed after the first few years of the financial crisis. Why is that? Too many men had security in their wealth. And the wealth was taken away. Their life was no longer worth living. Let me give you another example. I've spent, I've spent hundreds of hours with parents. And can I tell you how often parents go into a deep depression when a child goes wayward? Or in D.C., in a very workaholic culture, can I tell you, when someone loses their job, how quickly it crushes them? How do you know what your idol is? Well, take it away and look at what it does to you. It shows how much it has control and demand of your life. These losses show what these people were really worshiping. Now, what about you? Remember the idol I asked you to get into your mind earlier? Has your idol delivered on its promises? Has it given you what you want out of this life? The only reason why you turn to it is because it actually gives you something. So I worship my job because it gives me success and respect and a lot of money. I worship retirement because it gives me security about my future. I worship time off and vacation because it gives me comfort and rest. Your idols might give you temporary satisfaction, comfort, security, prestige, respect, entertainment, pleasure, happiness. But in the end, is it giving you lasting satisfaction? Is it really giving you what you want out of life? In the end, what you'll find is that the idols will not deliver on their promises in the way that you had hoped. Now, in, 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 uh, in the S SBC this week, they're talking about sexual abuse. Uh, and my first book in 2013 was a book on preventing child abuse in churches. I remember the opportunity to actually write a book, and I had set it as a career goal to at least write one and I had started drafting something, and a friend showed it to a publisher, and by the Lord's kindness, the publisher looked at it, and we talked through it together, and, and lo and behold, I was surprised. They said, okay, let's, let's turn it into a book. I'll give you a contract. So I worked hard at it. You know, the, the, the staff gave me a sabbatical, and I'd done lots of research, and I spent two months in, in a corner of a room, eight to five, writing this book. And then you go through, you hand in the manuscript and you think you're done, but it turns out you have to do endorsements, multiple rounds of edits. It's a ton of work to get into getting a book done. But then the day came. I went to the staff mailbox and there was the copy, the first copy. What they do is one of the first print runs, they pull one of the first copies of it off of the print run and they mail it to the author as a commendation for getting the book done. So one of the first copies was in the mail. I was really excited. After all these months of working on it, my first book, I pulled it out and I looked at it and I flipped through it and I thought, oh, is that it? <laughs> 
It's, it's funny because a feeling of emptiness came in. After all the months of work and labor, I thought, is, is that what I was looking for? I realized that in my own heart, you know, the desire to be an author was a kind of a self-glory tactic. It was like a way to exalt my own name. And so I was trying to get something out of it that actually couldn't bear the weight of my own heart. <laughs> and so when I stared at the book, I had maybe a fleeting moment of excitement. And this sense of emptiness kind of crept in when I realized, okay, this is it. <laughs> this is all it is. Do you really think your idols will give you lasting satisfaction? Only the one true God can ultimately satisfy you in a way that nothing else in this life truly can. Elijah was so confident that Baal didn't exist that he resorted to holy mockery. Look at verse 27, what he does. Elijah wanted to expose Baal as a fraud and a huckster. He took the opposing prophet's God and reduced him to human terms with human limitations. Now, some of you might be looking at this as an excuse for sarcasm. Ah, finally got a reason to be sarcastic in my home. <laughs> no, this is not that. <laughs> no, Elijah's goal is to disprove Baal as a God before he proves that his God, the God of Israel, is the one true God. Elijah let the prophets of Baal go first because he wanted to show Israel that Baal was not a real God. And that's why I'm calling this what he did in verse 27, holy mockery. When it comes to the worship of idols and the Lord God Almighty, we're talking about the difference between eternal life and eternal death. And so Elijah's holy mockery is much more important than our daily travails into sarcasm. So now we've seen that false gods will fail us, and Elijah has thoroughly disproved that Baal is a god. And so next, what we're going to see, that he's now going to show us who is the true God. That brings us to point number three. Turn your hearts back to God because he's the one true God. Point number three, turn your hearts back to God because he's the one true God. That, that's verses 30 to 40. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that he had, had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with, the twelve, and with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sheaves of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowls in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran down the, around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, 
Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he's God. The Lord, he's God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Look there, verse 30 and 31, Elijah repairs the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. The neglect of the altar probably had showed how far gone things had become with the people of Israel pursuing Baal worship. And then verse 32 to 35, Elijah makes the preparations for the offering and then he has them dig a trench around the altar and then pour four jars of water on the altar three times. Now the people of Israel knew that wet things do not burn. (laughs) That's what's going on here. (laughs) Elijah wanted to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that his God was the real God, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the God who was going to bring down fire from heaven. So in contrast to prophets of Baal's frenzy and activity, Elijah comes to the offering and he offers a very simple prayer. You see, in his prayer, why Elijah did all of this. You see there, look, verse 36. He wanted to show that God was the real God and that Elijah had done all this as his servant, according to God's very own words. And then look there, verse 37. He asked God to answer him so that the people may know that the Lord is God and that God, notice the word you, that you, God, is the one who turned the Israelites' hearts back to him. Elijah wanted the Israelites to know God and to know that God turned their hearts back. Astounding, isn't it? Because Elijah's God is a reconciling God. No more wavering. No more limping. No more wavering between two opinions. No more wavering between God and idols. If the Israelites would not commit, then God himself would rescue them from their wicked ways. So God himself would turn their hearts back to him. The same God who covered Adam and Eve with animal skin and promised the seed would defeat Satan one day is the same God who brought Joseph's family back from a foreign land is the same God who sent Moses to free the people of Israel from Pharaoh's death grip, is the same God who parted the seas, is the same God who brought water from a rock and manna from heaven, is the same God who would bring the Israelites to the promised land, and is the same God who would send Jesus to reconcile sinners back to himself. The same God who would send not only his son to die on a cross, but then through his son, turned the hearts of his own people back to him. 
a greater prophet than Elijah, Jesus came not only to call down God's judgment, but to lay down on the altar himself and receive God's judgment of idolatry for us. That's the gospel. That's our hope. Our God is a reconciling God. Take heart, whoever you are, because God did not leave us to our foolish selves. That is our hope. We can't do this on our own. But God rescued us by sending Jesus to rescue us from our idolatry because we can't do this on our own. What's required of us to repent and believe this, that God had sent his son for us. Now notice what happens in verse 38. Fire comes down from heaven, and it not only consumes the burnt offering in the wood, but it licks up all the water in the trenches. Now, have you ever wondered why fire coming down from heaven? You know, one of our favorite things to do in D.C. is to go up on the fourth floor of our ch- uh, the the roof of our church above the fourth floor on Fourth of July. Watch uh, around the monument the pyrotechnical show the great fireworks that they do every year on the mall. Well, this is not just some cool 4th of July fireworks, the most amazing pyrotechnical display you've ever seen because it's fire coming down from heaven. No, that's not it. (laughs) The point is verse 28, the point of the fire. The God who answered by fire is the true God. That's the reason for this. It proved that the God of the Bible is the real God. Now think about this. You can't exactly do this in your evangelism at work, can you? You know, imagine you're like debating things with agnostic or atheist, and so you decide to prove to him that your God's a true God, so you get up on a desk in the middle of the office area, and you say, oh God, bring fire down right now to prove that you are the true God. I mean, your boss would fire you if you did something like that. The question is, does God answer us? Does he answer us? He'll answer us if he's real, and do we hear him? God has answered us today, hasn't he? I don't know if you've ever taken the time to record your prayer requests and then gone back later on to see how many prayers that God actually answers. But you know most clearly that God has answered us because he sent his son for us. That was the most definitive way to say, I hear you, and here's my answer. Verse 39, the people of Israel saw that the fire came down from heaven, and they turned back to God. They fell on their faces and declared, two times, the Lord, he is God. So just like the Israelites responded, so this message requires a response from you. 2,000 years ago, God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. Jesus came to die for us so we no longer have to be captivated by our idols, but so that we can trust in him. So put down your idols and turn back to God. God says, your idols will fail you, but my son will never fail you. Turn back to him, whoever you are today. Give up your idols and turn back and ask God, for help this very day. Now look there, verse 40. Finally, Elijah has the Israelites seize the prophets of Baal and has them slaughtered. The prophets of Baal committed treason against the Lord God Almighty. 
So this is a picture of God's judgment on those who reject him. Now, this might be, seem pretty drastic. He has them all slaughtered. But ultimately, this is a picture of what happens if we turn to our idols and turn away from God. It's a picture of the judgment that will come if we choose to live according to false gods. So it's a warning for all of us today to reject our idols and heed the warning that we must turn back to God. It's a stark warning that all of us must repent of our idolatry and trust in Christ today. So we should conclude. Now, if you were with my family, you would actually know that usually during the fall, after church and after I've been online greeting people and seeing our members, I rush home, grab a meal, head downstairs and join my oldest daughter because we're both NFL junkies. (laughs) Usually a Sunday afternoon, we're trying to catch a game with the Washington Commanders. I can say their name now. They have a name. Uh, and uh, 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 the most dreaded team that we don't like them playing is the New England Patriots for many years, but now the Tampa Bay Buccaneers because Tom Brady has been their quarterback. Now, whether you like Tom Brady or not, at the age of 43, he has won seven Super Bowls and is often acknowledged as the greatest quarterback in all of NFL history. When he was a quarterback in college at the University of Michigan, he was known as the comeback kid. Because game after game after game, they would be behind, and he would always pull it out in the end. Well, by worldly standards, Tom Brady has accomplished all the success a professional football player would ever want. He has more Super Bowl rings, more appearances in the Super Bowl, more records than any other quarterback in NFL history. So you you would think that this guy is happy with his life, and truly content because he's accomplished everything he had set out to do at the beginning of his NFL career. And yet, in an interview in 60 Minutes, the interview was surprised to hear this super successful quarterback say, why do I have seven Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? Maybe a lot of people would say to me, hey, man, This is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, and my life is. But I think there's got to be something out there more than just this. And interestingly, the interviewer looked at him and said, well, what's the answer? What is it? And Brady just shook his head and said, I wish I knew. I wish I really knew. Well, you can have all the idols you want. You could be the most successful quarterback in NFL history. And yet your idols will not deliver. They didn't for Tom Brady and they won't for you either. So your idols will fail you. But God never will. Christ has come so that we don't have to live for our idolatry anymore. But we can turn to him. So will you today give up your idols and trust ultimately in him?